And so, so I'm Chris Gorman, one of the elders here. And uh, I was uh, uh, in Argentina, I know some of you know. And so I appreciate some of you praying for that. And uh, this morning we're going to read, uh, take a moment to read God's Word. And we've been going through, just beginning actually, a series going through the book of Revelation. And uh, a rich, uh, rich book of the Bible. And one in which we get to see clearly the glory of Christ, the glory of the Lamb, the triumph of the Lamb. And so, so it's exciting to go through this book, uh, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And so one of the things we do is we read God's Word. Is you're, you're going, we just sat down. But see, we want to make sure the blood's flowing this morning. And uh, so we're going to have you stand back up for just a moment. So... <laughs> I saw James kind of groan back there. Stand up. So, Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 uh, to the end. We'll we'll begin in verse 9. Revelation chapter 1. Hear God's word. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna, to Pergamum and to Thyatira and Cyrus and Philadelphia, um, yeah, Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands was one like the Son of Man. Clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white and the white wool like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire and his feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held the seven stars and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And he, and he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forever, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Let us pray. God, thank you for your word. Your word is our authority. It is powerful to move in our hearts by the power of your spirit to give us a clear understanding of who you are, of who your son Jesus is. And so God, even today, as Nick teaches this passage, God, would you open our hearts? Would you move amongst your church, God? May this word, this powerful word that is breathed out by you to us, your people, may you use this word to strengthen, to encourage, and to bless your people to convict us of our sin, to call us again and again to repentance and faith. And so, God, we thank you today that we have this moment and this privilege together as your body to hear the word of God preached. And we pray this in your name. Amen.
I'll ask for you just to, to pray that my voice makes it through. If you were here last night, it gave out during the table group time. I coached my daughter's soccer team. She won. She scored a lot. I cheered a lot. So I'm going to try to see if we can make it, and I'll actually be able to be audible throughout this whole sermon. But I'm excited about this message. I'm excited about Revelation. Many of you know we began the year in Daniel. We're ending in Revelation. All throughout Daniel, we saw God's sovereignty. We saw the perseverance of God's people. That's a lot of what we're going to see as we make our way through through Revelation now. The title today is Christ and His Church. And, and um, we're going to begin with looking that the Christian life is marked, is one of difficulty marked with perseverance. That's just where we're going to start because I think that's where, where John starts. And so um, there's three. Uh, Alan, can you turn me down just a little bit in the monitors? There are three visions in Revelation regarding Jesus. Um, we have the one here. In chapter 1, which is where we're going to spend all of our time today, there's one in chapter 5 where we see Jesus is the lion that looks like a lamb that was slain. And then there is chapter 19 where Jesus is presented as the divine warrior with the double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. He's riding on a horse and he strikes down all the enemies of God. So these are powerful visions of, of Jesus throughout this book. But we need to know how they function. We need to know what's the vision for, what's it moving us to, what's it meant to show us, how is it to affect us as the church. And so by doing that, we need to see what comes before the vision, what comes after the vision, and what its purpose is. And so we're starting today, verse 9, John says he's our brother and our partner. That's common language in the New Testament. When we become believers in Jesus Christ, we're family. That's what we are. We're brothers and sisters. We're, we're the children of God, partners common language but then he says he's my brother he's my partner in what in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance and so we need to look at these three things that he says because this is an extremely important verse not just in understanding revelation but in understanding the christian life this verse largely unpacks what it is to be a christian in this life. So first John says uh, he is our brother and partner in the tribulation. Many of you know tribulation means pressure, um, affliction, it means suffering. Uh, this is important. He says he is our brother, present tense, in the tribulation now. And it's key because there's, there's some, views of interpret, uh, some views of Revelation that they'll say, well, the tribulation is only future. It's only way out there, maybe even limited to a certain period of time, thousands and thousands of years from where John is writing. But while there might be, and we'll see as we go through Revelation, as we study, there might be an intensification of suffering as we move forward. But John is characterizing the age that he that we live in, the time between Jesus' first coming and his second coming, as tribulation. So we, we need to understand that, um, that this age, the age of the church, he's writing to the churches, the church age is described and marked by tribulation. And we see that all throughout Scripture. This is nothing new, but sometimes we forget it as we come into Revelation. 2 Timothy 3.12, Paul writes, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus 
will be persecuted, meaning there will be tribulation for believers. Acts chapter 14, verse 22. Paul has been going around. He's planting churches. He's now coming back to strengthen the churches. And he says um, that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Meaning, as we live, it'll be through tribulation as we come into God's glory. John 15, 20. Jesus says, remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me... Jesus, they will also persecute you. All throughout the New Testament, Jesus, the apostles, the writers in the New Testament clearly communicate that we live in a time of tribulation. We live in a difficult time. And so what I love here, we come into Revelation, and this, this is the book that meets us in the trenches. It meets us where we are. It doesn't just give us this rosy, flowery, sunny picture. Say, look, everything should be good. You're a Christian now. Everything just works out. It's not how Revelation... Revelation gives us a very real picture of the Christian life. It eats up lies like the prosperity gospel and just vomits them out. It doesn't let us hold on to those kinds of false truths. Revelation shows us the reality of the world that we live in, and then with that, it's going to show us the hope that we have. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. Um, what this means is that life is hard, not because necessarily we did something wrong. When the church is persecuted, when we experience hostility, it's not because we don't have enough faith. It's not because we made a wrong decision. It's, it's because those are the times that we live in. So we need to understand that. So that, that's the first thing that he just said. I'm brother and partner in the tribulation. Next, I'm your brother and partner in the kingdom. Jesus comes and he preaches the kingdom is at hand. That's what we read in Mark, Matthew, and Luke. And in John, he refers to it also. But all throughout the Gospels, we see Jesus brings forth the kingdom. The age that we live in is one in which Jesus has inaugurated the kingdom, meaning his rule is now evident here on earth through his church. In fact, one of the reasons we, as citizens of God's kingdom, have difficulty in this world is because we're on, eight, we're on foreign soil, right? Like that, that would be the implication. If we're citizens of God's kingdom, His heavenly kingdom, then here, which is largely characterized throughout the, the God's word as, as Satan's kingdom, as, as the kingdom of the world, we're on foreign soil declaring allegiance to Jesus whom the world does not love. And first century is a great picture of this because they actually have a guy, the emperor, who they're saying, he's our God, we worship him. If you don't worship him, you'll go to prison, you'll lose your money, you'll lose your friends, or we'll just kill you. That is, that is the culture that they live in at that time. And in fact, in today's culture, there are many places in the world where to be a Christian is a sentencing of death. And as you know, even here in America, the church is more is experiencing more hostility and will continue to experience more hostility as we move through. So that doesn't mean we're doing something wrong, but it means it is the age that we live in. We are citizens of God's kingdom, and therefore it is a time of tribulation in this world. Now third, 
Patient endurance is what John brings up also. This is key. The way we reveal our citizenship in God's kingdom here in the tribulation is by patient endurance, meaning perseverance. That's how we live here in this world. One of the major themes throughout Revelation, one of the major themes that was in Daniel, because apocalyptic literature is all about helping the people of God persevere, is perseverance. Next week, we'll be in the seven letters. We're going to look at all seven letters together, so you can pray that we can actually make it through that any timely function, and you'll be home for dinner. But So we're going to look at all seven letters. Um, they're going to take the vision that we have here of Jesus, and it's going to break it apart to the various letters, and the whole point is, because of this vision, persevere. Because of this vision, you can conquer. Because of this vision of who Jesus is, we can stand firm. So before the vision, John says, I'm your brother and partner, tribulation, kingdom, persevere. After the vision, we have, take the vision and persevere. So perseverance stands as the bookends on both sides of this vision. Persevere on this side, seven letters, persevere on this side. And really throughout the whole book of Revelation, we will see that perseverance is key. Revelation 13, after seeing a vision of the beast, and if you know, Revelation just has crazy visions all throughout it. So if you're unfamiliar with it, and you start hearing us talking about dragons and beasts, and that's what we have here in Revelation. Um, So there's a beast, and he comes, he's persecuting the church, and in verse 10 of chapter 13, here is a call for the encouragement and faith of the saints, meaning persevere is the message, and in fact, look what John does in verse 9, he says, I'm your brother and partner in the tribulation, the kingdom, the patient endurance, and then it's like, and let me show you what this looks like. I'm on an island called Patmos. Why? He says, because of or on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Why is John in exile on an island right now? Because of his faith in Jesus. Because of his faith, he's been arrested and he's been taken to an island where it would be largely characterized by people who have been rebellious towards Rome would be kept. And so because he does not worship the emperor, because he gives allegiance to Jesus, he is seen as a rebellious person, he is now isolated and exiled on an island where he endures great suffering. So he says, this is my life, right here. I'm your brother and your partner in the tribulation. I'm on an island right now because of my faith. And then guess what? Then he gives us this whole vision of revelation. So the fact that he's on an island, the fact that he's been exiled does not seem to discourage him, but he seems to be encouraged in the faith and he's pressing on and now he's writing to seven other churches that they, that we would press on in our faith as well. So we're going to move on from this beginning. So what we need to keep in mind though is that um, the church is described as citizens of God's kingdom who persevere in the tribulation. So we're just going to hold on to that. Now, as we go through this vision, we need to say, okay, how is this vision of Jesus going to function as a means of strengthening, of comforting, and of helping the church to persevere? Okay, so so we've looked at how John sets it up. Now we're going to go into the vision, and we need to understand how does this accomplish what John is writing. So we begin the vision And we're going to see that there's an incomparable radiance of Christ's glory. That's how we start. 
Um, the incomparable radiance of Christ's glory. John says he's in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. Lord's Day would be Sunday at this time. And just so you know, the words in the Spirit, they occur four times in Revelation. Uh, some people, and maybe rightly so, they actually organize the book according to when it says in the Spirit. And that's the four main sections of Revelation. So that's certainly a way to do that. But what we have, John is worshiping Jesus, he's worshiping God on the Lord's day, and then he hears a loud trumpet blast, and he hears right what you see. Now maybe this trumpet blast, maybe the trump- trumpets are often used to just or simply refer to judgment, so maybe that's just because of judgment throughout Revelation, or maybe it echoes back to Moses when God is going to speak to him at Mount Sinai, and there's this loud trumpet blast, and then God speaks, so there's much imagery that could be pulled in here. We have John, and he turns, and he's going to see one of the most breathtaking, awesome, glorious, fearful images we have in all of Scripture. He's going to see Jesus, and he's uh, he's a golden sash. His eyes are like a flame of fire. His feet are strong and pure like bronze. His voice roars like Niagara Falls. Just think about that. Just, it just roars forth. There is a deafening silence after his voice. You can't hear anything when he speaks. It's a double-edged sword coming from his mouth. His face shines like the noonday sun, which we might have today, which will be cool, because at 6 a.m. this morning, it was pouring, pouring down rain. Jesus is being displayed as our awesome king, as our perfect high priest. Just, just, just think about this for a moment. This is how we see our king and savior. This is how we need to see our king and savior. It's a little bit different than if you had one of those precious moments Bibles. Do you remember that? I had one, and it's all cute and Like, they didn't capture this vision. Like, where was this in the Precious Moments Bible? They didn't capture, actually, a lot in Revelation, which is probably good because those Bibles went to kids, and who knows what would happen at that moment. But this is our Jesus. This is how he's being presented. This is how John sees him. So how do we think about this? How are we to think about this vision. And so John is going to pull primarily from three. I have two on your bulletin, but there are three. I decided to go ahead and add the other one. There are three Old Testament texts that are largely being pulled from to, to create this image that we have. Um, the first clue is the word lampstand that zeroes this uh, into Zechariah chapter four. Now we're not going to look at all these other sections. But um, John turns and sees a lampstand. Now, a lampstand is a key piece of furniture in the temple. It would be outside the Holy of Holies. Solomon, Solomon actually made ten of them and put five of them on each side of the altar of incense in the temple. It seemed to represent um, God's presence with his people, but also it represented the fact that God's people were to shine forth, were to be a light 
in this world, which we see was to be um, their role in the Old Testament. As we come into the New Testament, Jesus says in Matthew 5.14, you're to be the light in the world. And so the people of God are to shine forth in this world. The candles were always to remain lit, showing the fact that we always shine forth the very glory of God. But as you know, as we're here in Zechariah, the temple has been destroyed, and now there is a figure, so there's, he has a vision of a lampstand, and on each side of the lampstand is an olive tree, and the olive tree represents Joshua, which is the high priest, and the olive, olive tree represents Zerubbabel, which is the governor or king at that moment, and they are charged by the power of God to do the rebuilding of, temp, of the temple, which symbolizes the reforming and the building of God's people. Um, and so that's what we have, this figure and this vision functioning as in Zechariah, that the king and a priest will come and the temple signifying the people will be rebuilt. And then as we move forward, we see that there is one who comes as a king and a high priest who saves the people who offers his life on the cross, that the people of God would be formed. He would, he would build a new temple. And we read about that all throughout the New Testament, where the church is now called the temple of God. We see that in Ephesians and other parts of the Bible. And in fact, at the end of Revelation, we see God's people coming down from heaven like a building, and it's in a cube, like the Holy of Holies would be. And God now dwells with his people. And so what we have in Revelation is that Jesus represents the king and the priest who will form God's people. And so that's that's part of the picture that we have here. The other part we have is when he says son of man. That was a key phrase that comes from Daniel chapter 7. If you were with us, we went through Daniel. Daniel 7 there's four terrifying beasts. And these beasts represent the worldly kingdoms of, um, that were going to be coming into the world. The fourth beast was Rome. It was the most horrifying and terrifying beast. And out of this beast came a little horn, representing an antichrist-type figure that blasphemed God. And then as we go through Daniel 7, we see God is sitting on his throne. He judges the beast, destroys um, the little horn. And simultaneously with that, we then see one like the Son of Man coming in the clouds, coming to the Father. And what happens? He receives an eternal kingdom of a people made up of every tribe and tongue and nation and language. And as we come through Revelation, when we get to Revelation 7, we see that God's people are made up of, a, of every tribe, tongue, nation, and language. So also here in Revelation, this vision is showing Jesus is the king who brings the people from every tribe, tongue, nation, language. And then lastly, the description of Jesus almost exclusively comes from Daniel chapter 10, referring to this angel, which most likely was Jesus, in Daniel 10. Now, if you remember, and you can go back, we have all these on, on the website, Daniel's chapter 10, 11, and 12 is one vision. And in Daniel 10, it's the beginning of that vision that then shows the persecution that God's people will experience under Antiochus Epiphanes, who was an Antichrist-type figure, which happened in 167 B.C. But then if you remember, we're in Daniel 11. Towards the end of Daniel 11, it shifts from Antiochus and seems to go forward to some 
future type of Antichrist type figure. And then as we move into chapter 12, what happens that then we see on that day, God will send forth Michael, his archangel, who will gather his people and God's people will be saved. Those who have died will be brought to life, to everlasting life, and they will shine like the stars forever in the heavens. And so what we have is that all suffering, all evil will eventually come to an end as God's people are brought into his presence for all of eternity to live with him. And so, to kind of put uh, all of these together, Jesus is the eternal kingly priest who saved a people, who will shine, who the people shine forth in the darkness as they're making their way in the tribulation. The people are made up of every tribe, tongue, nation, and language. Suffering is a present reality. But it will not have the last word because a day is coming when Christ will crush the enemies and all of God's people, those who have died and who are alive, will come and dwell with him forever, which is actually then what we see at the very end of the book of Revelation. That's what these pick this vision, that's what the three primary Old Testament texts it's pulling forth from to show that Jesus is the king. He reigns over people made up of all over the world. They go through suffering And yet there is victory that awaits them as they make their way through because God will put an end to all suffering one day when he returns. So how does the vision then strengthen the church? How does it call us to stand from? Is the message simply persevere as we wait for Jesus' return knowing that he's going to put an end to all suffering? Is it just persevere? It gets better. Because I think sometimes that's what we think. I think sometimes that's how we operate. Well, guys, Jesus is going to come back. Just, just keep pushing through. Press in. That might be partly there, but I don't think that's what he's really getting at because we're not done with the vision yet. In verses 17 through 20, that's where we have the interpretation. And so that's where this interpretation is going to now help us to understand, okay, this vision that shows Jesus as our kingly priest who who forms God's people from every tribe, tongue, nation, language, and will give them victory. What does that mean? How does that affect us now today? And so it's in verses 17 through 20 we have the interpretation, and it's here we see the immeasurable supremacy of Christ. So we kind of go from this incomparable radiance of Christ's glory, to now we're going to see the immeasurable supremacy of Christ. And notice verse 17. John falls down at Jesus' feet. What other response would we have? Like, think about this. You see a gloriously brilliant, powerful figure, double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. His face shines like the sun. You can't even hardly look at him. What else would we do? We're going to fall down before him and then notice jesus's response his right hand he lays upon john and he says fear not i just think about that fear not this glorious powerful radiant brilliant image of christ is not meant to cause us to fear but to be strengthened And to be comforted. The the message of Revelation is one that says, fear not. Whatever situation we are in, however bleak, however dark, however painful, there are these words that Christ offers, fear 
not. So I just pray as we keep going through, pray that those words comfort you. That our King, Jesus, is in all glory right now. And He is with us. I mean, He touches John. And He says, don't fear. I hope that comforts you today. That is a message from our King. And we'll see why it's so comforting here. We have three descriptions of Jesus in this interpretation. Number one, Jesus says he is the first and the last. We see that in verse 17. Now, where have we heard that before? Where have we heard? I'm the first and the last. Maybe not in exactly those words, but last week in the first part of Revelation, God the Father speaks and he says, I am the, do you remember? I am the, I'm the Alpha and Omega, the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. I am the first and and the last. I am the beginning and the end. In fact, in Isaiah 41.4, God says in Isaiah that he is the first and the last. So Jesus, Jesus is showing his oneness with the Father. Jesus, God is the first and the last. I am the first and the last. And in fact, in the description of Jesus, we see this also. The fact that Jesus has white hair like snow, where does that come from? That doesn't come from Daniel 10. That comes from Daniel 7 in the description of the Father who sits on the throne, who judges the beast, who the Son of Man comes to. God the Father is said to have brilliant white hair like wool, like snow. And the fact that Jesus' face shines like the sun, where else do we see that? In Revelation 22, we see there's no need for a sun in the new heavens and new earth. Why? Because the brilliant glory of the Father is with His people and it will illuminate the world. And so what we have is what the Father has, His attributes, His power, His authority is also shared with the Son. They are one together. Jesus is the very Son of God, possessing the very rule, attributes, authority, and power as the Father. He is God. So we need to know that. This book of Revelation revealing Jesus is not just a good guy. He's not just a good teacher. This is the very Son of God who has come. Now the next description is He's the living one. We see that in verse 18. And He seems to explain it by saying, He died and behold, I'm alive forevermore. And then the third saying is, Jesus has the keys of death and Hades. Let's just put that together. Jesus is the living one. He, he died, and now he's alive forevermore, and he holds the keys of death in Hades. Well, what is that communicating? I think it, it's the gospel, right? That is the gospel. Jesus, the Son of God, the one who is the first and the last, came to earth, died on a cross so that we could be forgiven of our sins. And the good news is he didn't stay dead, right? He rose three days later, conquering the grave. That's why he's the living one. He will never die again. He will never taste death again because he defeated death. He went into the mouth of death. He crushed it. He killed it. He conquered it. And now he holds the keys. He says, I own it. I possess it. He went into the the house of the strong man, Satan. He bound him and he took his keys. He says, he's got no authority. I have all the authority because I conquered death. I conquered sin. I conquered Satan. That's what Christ has done. So now we who believe in him were promised life, everlasting life, because the one 
who has conquered death is the living one, the one who is everlasting, the one who has conquered and therefore offers victory and life to all who trust in him. Which is why, as we get to the, each of the letters, it says to the one who conquers, to the one who conquers, to the one who conquers, because all who are in Jesus are conquerors because of what Christ has done for us. So what we have here is we have this vision of Jesus, radiant, brilliant glory. Why is he in radiance? Why is he in brilliant glory? Because of the gospel. Because he went and suffered and died so that he would overcome the grave. The reason we have the vision is because Jesus suffered and conquered. Now just think about that message. The suffering led to conquering. Suffering of Jesus led to the conquering and the glory of Jesus. That's something we see throughout Scripture. Suffering is the path to glory. Now, that goes against our human nature. I don't want to suffer. I don't, I don't want that. We want to avoid that. But, but here in the Bible, we see something very special, peculiar, and wonderful that God does with suffering. Let me read Philippians chapter 2. And this one's up on the screen. Um, pay attention, I think it's verse 9 when we get there. So this is about Jesus. Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So here we have the gospel. Jesus suffered. He left heaven, put aside all glory, and he comes to earth that he would die and that he would be put to death on a cross. Verse 9. Therefore... Don't miss the therefore. When we come to these, we always say, what is the therefore, therefore? Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every knee, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth. What's the point? Where does Jesus, why is it that Jesus is glorified? Why? Because he what? Interaction. Because he what? You can say suffer, you can say cross, Right? He goes to the cross. He suffers. Therefore, he's now glorified above every name and everyone will bow before him. The suffering was the path to glory. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory. Okay, he's crowned with glory and honor. Why? Because of the suffering of the death. Why does Jesus have all glory and power and might? Why is he displayed as this brilliant, radiant, mighty, majestic, kingly priest? Why? Because he suffered. Because he died. Because he went to the grave, obeyed the Father. And that's not the end of the story, though. He then rises victorious, conquering. Suffering was the path that led to glory. We see that all throughout Scripture as we begin looking at it. Um, I'll show that in a second. So let me give just three ways this now strengthens the church. Now think, first century church, they're suffering. 
Some of them have been arrested. We'll read later in chapters 2 and 3, there's a man named Antipas who has been killed because of his faith. There are others in, uh, what is it, Smyrna? The second Smyrna, who is for 10 days. Now that doesn't mean it's only 10 days. Again, 10 is a letter of completion, so it probably means a short period of time, but it's going to be a perfect, complete period of time. They're going to go through tribulation. It's about to be hell on earth for them. Other parts of the letter we have uh, to, I forget which one, we'll we'll look at it all next week. We'll be specific there. But he says, you live, or, or Satan dwells with you in your town. That's the description of where these cities are. You're about to go through hell. Satan lives with you. You guys are located where the synagogue of Satan is. We have all of this uh, persecution, this suffering, this tribulation surrounding the churches. Some of them have been killed. Some of them are being promised death. And now we have this vision that sits on the front of it saying, there is a king and he suffered and now he reigns supreme. So how does that help us? How does that help us to persevere? Number one, it gives us a pattern. So there's just three Ps because it's what pastors do. The gospel of Jesus gives us a pattern. The gospel shows us suffering is not useless. It is not meaningless. Rather, God uses suffering and affliction in powerful ways. Listen, the only way you or I, or anyone possess eternal life is because of the suffering of the cross. There is no hope in this world if we remove the suffering of the cross. There is no hope. Jesus suffered and died, taking the wrath that you and I deserve from God because we are sinful. And he goes to the cross and he suffers. He absorbs God's Wrath, something that if you and I were to do, takes an eternity, which is why hell is forever. And he did it on a cross, satisfying the wrath of God so that we who believe in him would have life. But it doesn't mean that now our life here on earth, everything goes well. Because now we, we know we also live in the tribulation and we are to be like lampstands doing what? Shining forth the very glory of God. And so therefore, our lives will look like the pattern that Jesus has given us. Jesus has shown us that our God is most glorified through his suffering, death, and resurrection at the cross. So yes, God can be glorified in our raises. God can be glorified in money. God can be glorified in large houses. All of those things he can be glorified in. But it appears that God has chosen suffering and weak things to be the primary means in which he is glorified with the cross standing as our, as our primary example all throughout the scriptures. Um, it's what we see throughout story of the Bible. Think of Joseph. Joseph is sold into slavery. He eventually is in jail at the bottom of the barrel, where then what does God do? Raises Joseph up to be second in command of Egypt so that all of Egypt would be saved. God uses Moses, a man who ran away from Egypt, to bring back 
And Moses didn't do anything other than just say what God was going to do. And God brought down plagues upon the most powerful nation at that time so that one of the smallest nations would be set free and have victory. God uses people like Gideon and 300 people to take out a Midianite army, which is described as more numerous than the sands on the sea. Why? Because in this weakness, it shows his glory. God uses Israel walking around Jericho with trumpets and a choir to bring down the walls. Why? He didn't use the might of Israel. He didn't use the power. He used the weakness of Israel to display his might and his glory. He uses David, a small boy, 14, 15 years old, to overcome a giant who is bigger than every single person in here. Why? To display his glory and his might and his power. All throughout Scripture, we see that God uses that which is weak and he uses suffering and uses pain as the means of bringing about glory. Christ is now glorified and he sits as our king because of the cross. And now he beckons us and calls us, follow me. The pattern, why? Because he has already conquered the grave. He has already conquered. And so we can now follow him knowing there is life, there is victory, there is glory that awaits us. And in Revelation chapter 7, after we see that God is bringing forth people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language, John turns to the angel and says, who are these? And the angel says, these are those who are coming out of the tribulation. They are clothed in white. Glory is what awaits us as we go forward. That's what we are promised. In, Re- in Romans chapter 9, it says, those who are justified then will be glorified. Romans 8, I don't know if I said 8 or 9. Romans 8 talks about all those who have been called and predestined and justified will be glorified. God has called us into the tribulation so that it would magnify His worth, His might. So he would be glorified, knowing then also that as we pursue that, we are being made like Jesus, that we will share in his glory. Do you know that? We share in his glory. 1 John 3, 2 says we'll be made like him. So this picture of Jesus, I don't know that we actually will look like that, but we will be made like him. That's what awaits us. It's not just persevere, guys. It gets better. No, no. It's that as we look at the, at the sufferings that we are in now, they fail in comparison with the joy and the life and the glory that God has promised us in Jesus. And so hear this. I don't think we have to limit this only to persecution. Certainly as a church, as a whole, even here in America, we will endure increased hostility and persecution. And when that day happens... And as it happens throughout the world, we can know that our God is glorified and that we are moving more into glory as that takes place. But if you're here today also, we also just struggle against the effects of sin still, against old age, against struggle, against uh, cancer, against depression, against Parkinson's, against anxiety. We struggle with things at work. We struggle with finances. We struggle 
with so many things in our life. And yet here we have a king who is saying, look, those things aren't meaningless. I know you didn't choose them, but he is using them for his power, for his might, for his glory to be displayed, and also for his comfort and his grace and his peace to come upon us as his people. So know that. Those things are not wasted. I know we don't choose them, but God chooses them as a loving father that he would show us his grace and his peace. Let me give two other words. Presence. Verse 13, John says, the first thing he sees is seven golden lampstands. In verse 20, we see that these lampstands represent the churches. The stars represent angels. We'll talk about the stars next week. Um, But where is Jesus with the lampstands? What's he doing? He's what? He's walking amongst them, right? He's with them. What does he do with John? He touches John. Jesus is with his churches as they're in the tribulation. We have no deistic view of God in the Bible. Deism is the idea that, okay, God might create, and then he separates himself from us. He's uninterested in us. He just keeps the clock wound, but he's off doing his own thing. When we come into Scripture, we see that there is a king who has conquered all, who sits on the throne above all, and yet he's in the very life of his churches. And as we get into chapters 2 and 3, the beginning of every letter is, I know, I know, I know, I know. Jesus knows his churches. He knows where they're at. He knows what they're enduring. He knows what they will endure. He is with them at this very moment. He knows our pain. He knows our suffering. And yet he says, I will now give you grace and comfort to keep persevering. Because we have a king who knows what it is to be persecuted, to be rejected, to be spit upon, to be laughed at. And now he is our high priest, giving us all the grace we need. So we don't just persevere saying, okay guys, just keep pressing. Hopefully it gets better. But he gives us the grace at every moment to persevere. That's what Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 says. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. So, so hear that. Every way you're tempted, Jesus has been tempted, and yet it says, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Why? Why do we come near to the throne? That we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That is what our king does. He doesn't sit on his throne and say, come on guys, let's move. But he comes into the churches, amongst the churches, holds the churches, gives grace and peace to the churches that we would press on, press forward, not because of our strength, but because of his grace with us. I read uh, this last Friday as I was working on this sermon, I read this in an email from, uh, um, about churches in China. It says, over the past few weeks, the Chinese government has escalated its persecution of Christians by destroying crosses, burning Bibles, confiscating religion materials, and closing churches. This week, the Beijing city authorities banned Zion Church, one of the largest unofficial Protestant house churches in the city, and confiscated illegal promotional materials. The crackdown started in April after the church rejected requests from authorities to install 24 closed-circuit television cameras in their building. So because the 
church did not do what the state had asked, they're now suffering. And they're being, all the things that they have are being taken from them. It's very similar to what we read in Hebrews, similar to what we read here in Revelation. This is a common practice throughout the world. Churches are being persecuted. So, so what do we do? Where's God? Do we say, man, he, he, must have, he must have left. He must not have been paying attention. No, rather, first, we're reminded this is the times we live in, right? We live in a tribulation. We live in a time where the church will not be seen favorably by the state. Now, it might be at times, and that's great, and let's rejoice in that. But there's going to be a lot of times the church will not be seen favorably, and it will experience hostility and persecution. So we've already been told this is the case. This is the times that we live in. So let's not be surprised. Therefore, let's pray. We can pray for perseverance. We can pray for our brothers and sisters that they would persevere. Now, why would we pray that? Because we know that's God's will. We know that we pray that they will continue to persevere. We pray they won't be discouraged. We pray that they will continue to experience the comfort of Christ, knowing that he is with them right now. That the fact that the state has come in and taken all the things that they own does not mean that Christ is not with his church. No, he's with them. He's walking with them. And he's going to give them all the grace and the peace they need. And as we as Timberline, as we move forward, and as we hopefully do more things here in Thurston County and other parts of the world, and hopefully we see greater things happen for the kingdom, it's very likely we will see greater hostility from the world that we live in. What do we do? We need to be reminded that our God is with us. He walks with us and he comforts us and he holds us and he gives us the grace and peace to press forward. We might look weak, but in Christ we are strong. We might look defeated, but in Christ we are conquerors. We might look despondent, but in Christ we are full of hope. It's this image that gives us this. Lastly, the last word, plan. We know that God has a plan. Look at verse 19. Jesus tells John, once again, write what you see. Now again, see. The whole thing is a vision. So let us just be reminded. John's going to be writing the things, the visions that he sees. Now we need to be careful with this verse. I think it tells us a lot, but sometimes I think some people are making it say more than what it says. Some people have treated this verse as if it's the key to all of Revelation. If we understand this verse, we know everything. I think they take that too far. Some people will interpret the words, those that are to take place after this, as if there are things in this book that are only for a very distant future, perhaps thousands of years from the original writers. But we know that's not true. Everything in this book must be relevant for the first century church. Everything here. So as we're looking at it, the only way we understand it is First coming, okay, how do they see this? How do they understand it? And then we'll be able to say, okay, how do we understand this verse now as well? Because there are certainly truths that are applicable for us that we'll see as we continue to go through. But what I just want us to see, if you look at verse 19, write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. What does this verse communicate? What do you think it communicates? Christ knows what's going to take place. That's the point. He knows the things that are, 
He knows the things that will take place. He knows them. And as we make through our way through in Revelation, we'll see things that would have affected the first century that affect us today. And yet we know Revelation isn't chronological because it seems that the world is destroyed like six times as we go throughout the book. And there's times we, we, we're making our way through, then and we get to Revelation chapter 12, and we go all the way back to the beginning that Christ is born. So it seems to go forward and backwards, forward and backwards many times. But the main thing that we see here in Revelation 19, God knows what will take place. It's all been ordained. He is the one ruling over the church. So as we press in, as we look to see what's happening, we have hope that our king has conquered. He's gone to the grave. He's the living one. And because he has conquered, we know we can too. And as we go through the tribulation, we know there's glory that awaits us. There's glory that will be given to the king. Our God will give us peace and comfort to make our way through. And we are moving towards Revelation 21 and 22, where Christ will return. All the enemies will defeat, be defeated, and we will dwell in a new heavens and new earth with Christ. That is where we are moving. This is the vision that we have that sets off the book. A book much about suffering. This vision is already communicating. Suffering does not have the last word. It's simply a means in which not only God will be glorified, but that we will experience life and glory in Christ. Let's pray. Father, Father, you give us a vision of your Son. And I pray that as we see that, God, our hearts are strengthened. God, I pray those words, those words fear not, come upon us. That we hear them. And Lord, just even as we hear them again now, that we would not fear, but yet we would be full of confidence knowing that, Lord, you reign now. You have gone to the cross. You have suffered. You have died. And you have conquered and because you have conquered, we know that there is life and there is victory for all who believe in you. May we know that. May we know that you are with us. May we know that as we go through pain, hostility, suffering here in this world, whether it's because of sin and just life and health, or because it's persecution that comes from about, may we know you are with us and you will persevere your church, your bride, your body, God. God, we know that you love us. God, I pray that we as a church would be strengthened by this vision. And that as we move forward and we press on, God, we would know that you are with us at every moment of every day. There is nothing that happens that you are not aware of that you do not know, but that you reign and you rule. God, we love you and we thank you. In your name, Jesus, amen.